Well, I love when my family gets together. It doesn't happen often because we're all grown up and married and we live all over the place, different states. But when we are together, I cherish it mostly because my kids get to spend time with my siblings, which is great. A couple years ago, I was coming down the stairs in my parents' house. They had this awesome house with like a spiral staircase and it overlooked the living room. And as I was coming down, I could see my brother on the couch with his arms around my two girls, and they were watching a princess movie. Total act of love for my brother to do this. But the thing that was so funny about it is that they all three had the exact facial expression. They were locked on this movie. Uh, And of course, being the mature adult that I am, I just can't pass up moments like these when they come. So in the most condescending voice I could muster, I yelled down the stairs, Hey, Blaine. Is this the best movie you've ever seen? But forgetting something very important about spiral staircases, that side by the railing is not very wide. So in my uh, eagerness to throw a little zinger at my brother, I fell down the stairs mid-sentence. Mid-sentence. I rolled. It was, it was terrible. I mean, how many times as a grown-up do you really fall that hard? I mean, down the stairs. It was humiliating, and by the time I got to the bottom, I was kind of, you know, winded and trying to regain composure, and my brother's response was hilarious. Didn't move a muscle, he stayed put on the couch, arms around my girls, and just said very calmly, girls, do you see what happens when you talk mean to your brother? (laughs) And they all, they got wide-eyed and a very good lesson on what not to say with your words. And you know, I've actually thought about that over the years. What would happen if every time I opened my mouth to say something I shouldn't, I fell down the stairs, I tripped, I physically hurt myself? Probably be a much wiser woman, right? (laughs) But the reality is, we don't typically face consequences for our bad decisions or our wrong motives or the words that we say, at least not right away. So there's this tendency that can creep up in our lives as Christians to not really remember just how important it is to live righteous lives in the things that we do say, in the things that we think in our attitudes. This has to be so important to us, and we can't forget that. But what do we do practically to keep that in the forefront of our minds, this desire for righteous living? Well, I think James has just the thing for us to look at tonight, and I would love for us to read the passage together. We're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 19 to 25. Turn there with me, and I'd love for us to read the whole section together as we jump in. James 1, 19 to 25 says this. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, Being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. As we've seen so far, James is really, he's making this passionate appeal to his brothers, these people he loves, reminding them how important it is to stay steadfast in their faith no matter what circumstance comes their way. It's so important. 
And with that in mind, we see him kind of switch gears a little bit. He's not changing the subject entirely, but really he's building on that same theme. And he does that in verse 19 with a little phrase. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, know this. It's like he's grabbing you by the shoulder a little bit and and saying, this is important. Don't forget this. You need to remember this. And really, in light of the call to persevere in faith, no matter what, knowing that the goal is to be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing, that, that goal of sanctification, we see him kind of give an umbrella statement, if you will, for what that should look like in your practical everyday life. Here's like a summary statement that he gives us in verse 19. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person, this is across the board, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James makes a lot of stark contrasts, and he does it on purpose because he's trying to build emphasis. And right away we see him say, this is something you need to be quick to do. You need to be quick to hear. And so obviously there's an, an emphasis on listening. As like the old saying goes, the Jewish um, sayings of the time were similar. God gave you two ears and one mouth. And that's on purpose, right? And we know that that is important. We should be quick to hear. We should be quick to listen. But I think James has something a little deeper in mind here, something that he wants us to really look at. And I think that because of the context. Over and over and over again, all through the book of James, he's going to bring everything back to the word, the word of God, the implanted word. And he does that, we see in verse 18, he references the word of truth. Does he mean that we should be good listeners in conversation when we're listening to our sisters? Of course, that's naturally true. Of course, that's a good, right thing to do. But I think James has something a little deeper in mind. I think he would have us be careful listeners to the words that Jesus says. Listen to the words of Jesus. We should be good at listening to what he says. That's the most important thing we can hear. And that phrase, quick to, really says something about the attitude here. There should be an eagerness to do this, a quickness. This tells us what the quality of that listening should be quick to. That describes someone who's teachable, someone who's humble. And yes, practically, that would make for a much better listener across the table at Starbucks, wouldn't it? But we are to, as one commentator said, be people who are good at hurrying up and listening. Hurry up and listen. And logically, it transitions right into what James says next. If you are quick to hear, then you should probably be slow to speak. Again, This is a practical thing. We should be people who maybe say less words, probably. Listen more than we speak. Be good in conversation, yes. But I think, again, James is saying something a little deeper here. And to prove that, let's think about the inverse of it. Think about the exact opposite. Think of someone who is slow to hear and quick to speak. And if you're struggling finding an example of that, just think about the last time you were on social media for five minutes. There it is a whole portal for people to be the authority and the expert on absolutely everything. Not a place where you go to sit and learn and you know, relish in all the wisdom that you find there, but someplace you can go to post your expertise, your thoughts, your truth, your knowledge about just about anything. Fortunately, if you're someone like me is trying to figure out how to do a better job curling your hair, did you know that there are like 100 experts on how to use a curling iron? There it is. Everybody's the authority on everything. Well, this is true in our culture, but it, sh- it sure shouldn't be true in the church. And sadly, it's creeping in. It is. And we need to check ourselves as Christian women to make sure that this attitude, albeit okay in the culture, is not okay in the church. It shouldn't be okay to us. And we've got to ask ourselves questions. 
Like, when I listen to other people, am I just dying to interject with my opinion? Am I just listening so that I can find the right spot for myself to jump in and take the conversation? Am I overly critical of everything I hear because I think I know better? Am I quick to correct even my small group leader or my pastor or whoever it is because I think I know better? Those are attitudes that are dangerous for us as Christian women because they all kind of ring of one word, and I think you probably are thinking of it right now, pride, right? And pride doesn't honor Christ. Plain and simple, it just doesn't. And that's exactly what James is saying. We need to make sure that we are believers who are characterized by being an eager learner, that we're careful with the words that we speak. This is why James later comes back in his letter to give a fairly terrifying warning to those who would teach, saying that this, the judgment is strict. As a general rule, Christians should be those who are slow to speak, who are eager to learn, and carefully check themselves against any kind of pride that might crop up. And again, James, you can kind of see, to me, this just umbrella statement, you can see just the total transition leads straight into, if we're quick to hear, we're slow to speak, we should be slow to anger. And that makes sense, because when are we most tempted to say something we regret, to say something in anger? When our pride is hurt, right? When we aren't given the respect we think we deserve, or whatever that looks like. When, when we respond in anger, it's a telltale sign there's pride in our heart. Indignation accompanies pride, but humble people are able to slow down that tendency, not be hot-headed, not be self-righteous, not be self-defensive, just take a step back. And ultimately, that's because believers should be way more interested in exalting Christ than exalting self. And when we're angry, and in this context, it's probably that James is referencing relationships with other believers in the church, it just proves that that pride is there. And it's going to prevent us from honoring Christ the way we should. Christians should have a peaceful, humble disposition. And anger, it just doesn't produce that. It just doesn't. Look at verse 20. James says, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The goal is to live a life that produces the righteousness of God. It's almost like everything he's been saying up to this point, here's just this overarching statement, if you will. It all boils down to this. It's like, here's where James lowers the boom. It's like, this is what it's all about. This is why it matters how you hear, what you speak, what your attitude is like. It matters because if you don't get this right, you're in danger of not producing the righteousness of God. It's enough for us really to pause right here and just ask ourselves the obvious question that we can assume is pretty important to James. He assumed his readers would think this is important as well. Just ask, do I care about the righteousness of God being produced in my life? Is that the goal? Let's write it this way for our first point. Let's honestly evaluate our hunger for righteousness. Commentators say that uh, James' letter was influenced by Jesus' teaching, which is so true because as you read, it's like you can almost hear different themes in James' tone, like he's thinking about the teaching of Jesus. It was important to him. And we see this pretty clearly, as I was reading this, in thinking about Matthew 5, 6, when Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. What does that even mean, to hunger and thirst for righteousness? I think it's the same idea that James is putting forward. We should care. We should want 
our lives to produce the righteousness of God. We should want to do what he says. We should want to honor him, not just with the things we do, but the way we say what we say and our attitude even about it. And for us to really accomplish that, we're going to have to really think about our motives. A lot of times, we don't think about our motives. By the time our head hits the pillow at night, I doubt that we're really going through the items that we did in the day and just saying, hmm, I wonder if everything I did and said today spoke well of Christ. For anything like me, count down from 10 and you're gone. You see the next day when you wake up. But I think we should probably be better at checking our motives. We should be better at asking ourselves, why do we do what we do and say what we say? Do I care about the righteousness of God being produced? How do we increase our desire for righteous living? How do we actually go about that? I think James anticipates that question and leads us right into the next verse in verse 21. Let's read verse 21. He says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. If you want to pursue righteousness, then get rid of the obstacles to it. Get rid of anything that stands in the way of you pursuing that, righteous living before God. This uh, filthiness here refers to like spiritual dirt, if you will. It's anything that's unclean, anything that falls short of God's perfect moral standard. And rampant wickedness, is a, it's a stronger term. It's moral depravity. It's, it's anything that just is against God's law. And that word rampant is interesting. Commentators are actually split on this. Some say that rampant wickedness refers to kind of the overflow of your sinful life before you came to Christ. Like remnants of the old man, if you will, the leftovers of your sin nature that you need to make it hard break with once you come to Christ. Others say that rampant wickedness is actually talking about the world around us, the influences that are all around us trying to pull us off the path. And I think we can safely say that both of them we should put away. Both are applicable here. Put them both away. And that term, to put it away, is the idea of taking off a dirty jacket and setting it down. And it's more than just taking off a dirty jacket and setting it down. It's the idea of getting it away from you. That's what we're to do with the sin in our hearts both in our hearts and in the environment around us, anything that would pull us off the path. I was reading a a Puritan preacher this week talking about the eradication of sin, and he compared it to fully scrubbing off all the sweat residue on your body. And I was laughing. I, I, uh, I was literally, I told my husband, it's too bad the Puritans didn't have Pelotons, because I do, and I think about this statement, and I exercise. I sweat a lot, it's super gross, And it's a good thing that I'm taking care of my body, right? I'm exercising. That's great. But arguably, the job isn't done until I bathe. How gross would it be if I just got off and pulled my clothes on and put makeup on my sweaty self and was like, good enough. You guys probably wouldn't sit next to me. But that's kind of the picture here. Don't stop short of cleansing yourself fully. Get rid of all of the things that are going to cling to you, all of the sin that's going to tempt you. Get rid of it. And as we know from scripture, you never just put something off without putting on. There's something we should do. There's a direction we should head. And James, again, anticipates us that and leads us right there. Let's read verse 21 again. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. There it is, another contrast. Receive and welcome. Two totally opposite words. And the way that you would put something far away from you, you'd get rid of it, you would do the opposite with the implanted word. You'd throw the doors open, you'd welcome it in, you'd pursue it. 
That's the picture here. That's what we're to do with the implanted word. And that's a weird phrase, isn't it? The implanted word. What does that even mean? Does that mean that it's like always been a part of you, deep down, implanted, and you just have to like wake it up somehow? No. I love how James, again, clearly has the teaching of Jesus on his mind. And I think as he's writing this, he's thinking of his brother's words in a very important sermon when he references the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, verses 18 to 23. In that passage, we see that Jesus gives a parable of a farmer throwing seed, grabs a handful of seed, and he throws it out. And some lands on the path, some on the rocky ground, some on the thorns, and some in good soil. But ultimately, the only seed that actually survived and grew and took root was the one in the good soil. And Jesus said clearly, that's how you are supposed to receive my words, the gospel message. You should welcome it, receive it, let it take root and keep on growing until fruit comes. And this is undoubtedly what James had in mind when he was writing this, receive with meekness the implanted word. Those words of Jesus that you submitted to in repentance and faith, those words of the gospel that Christ spoke and saved you, those words should change the trajectory of your entire life. That verb tense in Greek for the word welcome is continual. It never stops. Once it begins, it never, ever ends. The moment of your conversion was the beginning of your never-ending pursuit of Christ's words. It began with the reception of the gospel, and it will linger and continue your entire life if you're a real Christian. We should never stop taking in, pursuing, learning the words of Christ. Let's write it this way for our second point. Humbly resolve to be a lifelong learner. Lifelong learner. I know this is probably a sad way to think of it, but have you ever stopped and really thought about what people will say about you after you die? If the Lord tarries, and he might, there will be a day when he calls you home, and think about how strange this will be. Your friends and your family, they will all get together, and they're going to share a meal, and the topic of the conversation for the day is your entire life, all of it, start to finish. What will they say? You know, in my experience, It's interesting because when we think of our lives, we think of so many things. There's so much you could say, right? There's so many hats we wear. There's so many people we interact with. There's so many things we do. But it's really interesting how it seems like at the end of someone's life, that's generally not the case. We don't hear long, lengthy discourses about every single thing a person did. Usually, a person's life gets kind of boiled down to a couple of sentences. What they did that mattered, who they loved, what they were all about. And usually those things get repeated kind of by everybody. It's interesting, isn't it? If you are a Christian, there should be a theme that runs through every day of your regenerate life. And it should be that you are committed and resolved to pursue Christ with your mind and your actions both. That you were a person who wanted to learn of him and you never, ever stopped. That you wanted to live for him and you never, ever gave up. And the day of your death is actually going to prove if that was really the case. Everyone will be able to see it clearly. Paul said this in Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the idea of progressive sanctification. That is the idea of you growing in holiness your whole life. And I think that's exactly what James is talking about. 
in verse 21. The implanted word, the words of Christ, has the power to save you as you respond in repentance and faith, and the power to transform you so that you become more like him every day of your life. There's never going to be a time when you can say, I've arrived, I'm there. You always will have room to grow. My husband, uh, when he was in seminary, sat next to a woman who I think she was, I'm not exaggerating, I think she was 89 years old. And somebody asked her, why are you, you know, here taking classes? And she said, well, I'm not done learning. I want to be useful to the Lord, and this might help me. Wow, what a shame to everyone else in that class, especially in their 20s, thinking they had that, that class wired because they had an A, right? She got something that they all needed to learn. That same lesson is true for us. How do you know if you're a lifelong learner? How do you know if you are really welcoming the implanted word and you are making strides in sanctification? Well, again, let's think of the inverse. Beware of things like this that might let you know that you're not a lifelong learner. Beware if you ever say, I know this already. This is a waste of time. It's so simple. If you ever try to show off what you have memorized or the things that you have read, beware. If you can walk away with a sermon from, with more critiques for other people than application for yourself, beware. If you can't think of any questions that you have when it comes to things that you would like to know about theology or God's word, beware. The implanted words of Christ need to change your life, and you need to keep growing. And ultimately, this is done in one very specific way, and it's an attitude that we cannot miss. Look at verse 21. We have to see that word meekness. It's to be done with meekness. Meekness defined is gentleness or humility in action or behavior, in contrast with harshness and self-importance. This word is most famous for being the word that Jesus used to describe himself. Isn't that awesome? Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle. I'm lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. If you want to be like Christ, if you want to truly grow in sanctification, it all starts here with an attitude of meekness. It's the absolute prerequisite for welcoming the word, both for salvation and for sanctification. And welcoming the word involves both knowing it, reading it for yourself, and hearing, being taught. You're a hungry learner. And not just so that you can know more, not just so that you feel better about yourself, but so that you can do it. Look with me at verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. There is a distinction between hearing and doing. This doesn't mean that hearing isn't important. Let's be clear on that. It's just hearing only. You can't stop there. And this really should be a warning to us. You're at risk of being self-deceived if the extent of your faith is hearing the truth in one ear out the other without doing anything about it. If you say you're a Christian, but your life is not marked by active obedience to Christ, you're at risk that you may not actually be saved. If you don't ever read the word, you're at risk to disobey it just for sheer ignorance sake. We should know what the word says so that we can do it. There are a lot of people who deceive themselves 
that they are real Christians because they go to church, they hear sermons, they prayed a prayer one time, whatever it is. And James is almost shouting from the rooftops here. That's not real faith. It's not genuine faith. And like he's going to tell us later, faith without works is dead. So how do you know if your faith is real? Well, you know that real faith pleases God through active obedience. It's an obedience to Jesus every day, forever. A whole life obedience. And that obedience is rooted in his word. You have a love for him and you want to do what he says. And James even goes on to give us this weird example of a man looking in a mirror. And I think this is such a good one. I want us to pay really careful attention to his wording here. Let's read verses 23 to 25 together. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and he forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Isn't it interesting that James describes the man as looking intently? When you look up that word intently, you know what it means? Bends over. It's not weird. Well, it makes a lot of sense if you're in the first century and you have a brass plate that's polished and that's the best mirror you've got. It's sitting on a table somewhere, and to get a good look at yourself, you'd have to lean in, stoop down, get close. That's the picture that he's painting here, that lean in. And right away, isn't it just a good picture of what believers should do with the word? They should look intently. They should lean in. They should study it. They should know it. I think for Christians, this should be the case. We should want to know what the Bible says, which means it should probably be part of our daily routine. We should be reading, and maybe more than reading, we should be studying. We should make this a priority. And life is so busy. I know if you're, if you're like me, I feel like I, I blink and a week is gone, another week is gone, another week is gone. And I realize it's October, but I'm totally decorating for Christmas this week. It's come so fast, you know? <laughs> but you know what? I think it's because we're busy, we have to really be careful to make it a priority because it's going to slip right through our fingers if we don't. Instead of it being an excuse for why we don't dig into God's word, let's make it a priority, that motivation for why we have to. Because if we don't, it'll slip right away. And what it really comes down to is discipline, isn't it? And there's a lot of things we make ourselves do. I'm sure every single one of us in this room does laundry every week, whether we like it or not, because we have too much dignity to come to church in our jammies, Right? Well, there's other things like exercise. I think of it even like that. I like to exercise because I know it affects change in my body and I know it's good for me. But how much better would it be if I gave my time and attention to something that would change my spiritual life and do me good forever? Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.8, bodily training is of some value. Laundry is of some value. Making your beds are of some value, right? But godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. We have to make a daily discipline of prioritizing our time in the Word. We just have to do it. It's going to be hard. We're going to have to commit to it. We're going to have to persevere and keep going. But we do it because we know that it's not just something we know. It's something that's going to change the way we think. It's going to change our attitudes. It's going to change the way we live if we're actually serious about it. And that is worth the effort and the commitment. It's something we must do. We have to. We have to persevere and keep going. Let's write it this way as we close our time together. Let's be women who commit to persevere in active obedience.
How many of you guys have been to women's retreat? Yes, so good. I've loved every retreat I have gone to, but I will tell you, the one downside for women's retreat is four women in one bathroom, all trying to get ready in the morning, right? I'm going to give you a hypothetical scenario. Just play this out in your head with me. This next retreat, you and I are going to be roommates. There's two other ladies in there, all four of us in this room, and we wake up and we're all trying to be gracious about who gets to go in the bathroom first. So I boldly wake up and say, I'm going to get ready first. Is that good with you guys? And you, because you're kind, and also because if you have been my roommate, you know it's a pitiful thing in the morning, and I should probably go fix that, uh, let me go first and to go get ready. So I get all my stuff, I go in the bathroom, I shut the door behind me, and you wait and wait and wait and wait. And then an hour later, I emerge from the bathroom, and to your surprise, I look exactly the same as I went. <laughs> I'm still wearing my retainer, I've got my glasses on, my hair's sticking everywhere, and so you just try to, you know, kindly ask me, what on earth were you doing in there for an hour? And then I tell you, oh, I took a good look at myself. I got an inch away from the mirror and I saw every blemish. I saw all the ingrown hairs and the dark circles. I saw the slobber on my retainer. I, I saw it all. I memorized the freckles. I got a good look at myself. Well, I would hope you would say, why on earth didn't you do something about it? Didn't you remember the whole point of you going in there is to improve the situation? Well, as ridiculous as that is, and don't worry if we room together, I will not do that to you. Uh, that's exactly the scenario that James is painting for us. I mean, it's what he's trying to communicate. It's just as foolish as a man who leans in and examines his natural face in the mirror. He's looking intently, and then he walks away, and he completely forgets what he looks like. The whole point of walking over to the mirror was to improve the situation. Some have interpreted this passage to say that the reason why he wasn't able to affect change is because he didn't linger with the mirror long enough. He just took a passing glance and he walked away, and poor guy, he didn't even see the spinach in his teeth. But that's not exactly the wording that James gives it. If anything, he actually gives more detail to the way that the careless man investigates himself as to the righteous man who looked into the law of liberty. Arguably, both men leaned in and looked deeply. Both of them scrutinized and took care to pay attention to their natural face, the face God gave them in the mirror. But the difference is what they did with it. One walked away and couldn't have cared less what he saw, and the other was actively obedient, and he worked hard, and he kept working hard to improve the situation. And I think this little metaphor that James gives us, this analogy, is so interesting because really, it means none of us are off the hook. If you are a person who is taking the word of God and just taking a passing glance and not looking intently at it, start there. This should be convicting. You should be studying God's word. You should know it. You should want to know it. And for those of us who are studying and reading, don't think that that alone is going to please God. Studying alone is not praiseworthy apart from doing something about it in this specific passage. How are you doing in that? Are you checking the DVR off and listening to sermons and doing all the things and your life is not changing? Because it should be. Every single time you come to God's word, which hopefully is every day, you should come with an attitude of meekness, an attitude that says, God, I need you to show me who you are. I need you to show me what needs to change. How do I do this? What do I need to know so that I can do it? 
And we have to remember how James started this whole thing, all the way back in verse 19. Do you care about the righteousness of God being produced in your life? Is that really the goal? It has to be. James is challenging us to persevere in doing the word, not just hearing it. And he ends with this promise that we can take to heart. Look at the end of verse 25. The one who perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That's where your true satisfaction comes from. Not from checking all the boxes, not from knowing more than everyone else, but from knowing that your father is pleased with you because your life mirrors a righteous reputation that's his. Let's be women who persevere in righteous living through humble obedience to the word of God, all with the goal that we find our satisfaction knowing that our God is pleased with us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your example. I thank you for your instructions, Lord, so that we know how to follow you. I pray that collectively um, we would be a group of women who would take this to heart, that we wouldn't take for granted the fact that we have your words available to us, Lord, that we would be good students, that we would want to know what you say, that we would have questions, that we would pursue you, and it wouldn't stop, God, that we would never get to a place where we think that we're good or we've arrived or we know more than everybody else, Lord, but that attitude of humility and meekness and teachability, Lord, would define us every day for the rest of our life. I pray that this room, these groups would be effective, Lord, as we talk with each other and keep each other accountable and push each other, Lord, to grow in sanctification, to do it for your honor, that our lives would be really marked with righteous living, not for our own sake, but for yours, Lord God. I pray that we would leave this place with a desire to please you, just rechecking our motives and, and asking ourselves, Lord, and asking you to show us anywhere that there's pride that we're not even seeing, Lord. Give us a desire for you. Help us want you. Help us want to know what your word says and not just to know it, but so we can do it, Lord. I pray that this um, would be a room full of women that one day would leave legacies, would have reputations for being women who loved the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. I pray that you would give us success in that, Help us to be quick to hear, that we would be eager to hear and to learn. Help us to be slow to speak, slow to see ourselves as the authority, slow to jump in when we should maybe not. I pray that you would hold us back from anger and indignation, Lord, and that truly we would follow you in a way that honors you. I'm grateful to you, God, for the chance to come together and to hear your word, and I pray that you would give us success and obedience because we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.